This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. We've got a new sponsor this week. It's Mac Weldon. Much like some of our other sponsors we've gone on and on about, on and on about, Mac Weldon does something that used to be kind of annoying and boring and not that great of experience and made it premium, fun, super, and actually kind of pleasant. What is it? It's going to sound crazy. Bear with me. It's men's undergarments. That's right. Socks, t-shirts, underwears of various tightness all the way from the, the, the brief to the boxer. And of course, the golden mean, the boxer brief. So here's what, what it is. It used to be boring stocking stuffer, this kind of stuff you'd get, you know, oh, great socks from wherever, not that interesting. But with Mack Weldon, it's something that people not only don't mind, but they actually would look forward to. You can get a holiday pack that's a little bit of everything. You know, if you know the guy you're shopping for is a boxer, a brief guy, or you can do a couple samples, all socks, all shirts, nice combination packs they have there. Mac. Weldon.com, M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N. Use the promo code BOOKRIOT, one word, and get 20% off. 20% off Mac Weldon, which has smart design, great high-end fabrics, simple, beautiful shopping interface. Really, it's so easy to see. There's not a million choices. There's enough choices, but not so many that you feel like you're, you're, you're assembling a car or something like that. Um, all of their products are natural antimicrobial, this means they won't stink as bad. I'm putting that in there just because you don't know. That's what the microbes make the stink. Not as many microbes, not as much stink. That's what we call algebra. So this is what you should do. Go check it out. If you know the size of the person you're shopping for, you can do that. Or you can get them a gift card. Or if they don't like the pair they get, they can keep it and you can still get a refund. No question to X. We know it can be hard to shop for intimate apparel is that, is that the euphemism we use now? I'm not sure that could be lingerie. But for men's undergarments, especially for other people, for you, you can figure it out. But for other people, you want to know that if it doesn't work, get a refund. They also perform well. So going out, going to work, all those sorts of things, it's just right for every kind of activity you're going to have. So that's MacWeldon.com, 20% off. Trust me, a good gift for a fella that you're shopping for. All right, let's get on with the show. This is the Book Riot Podcast, a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. This is episode 134. We're recording on Wednesday, November 25th, 2015. I'm Rebecca Shinsky. I'm here with Jeff O'Neill. We're coming to you from bookriot.com. Short Hello. week. Short week. Happy Thanksgiving to everyone out there uh, who is celebrating, taking time off. Um, yes. I hope your side dishes are warm and your tor- turkey is moist this holiday season. Um, it, and may you have a pile of books to yes, spend the Yes, and may have a pile with. of books. And, you know, if you get caught in an airport, and you, I hope you have a book with you. Uh, speaking of book requests, we, we haven't gotten that many. I just looked. Uh, you asked me yesterday how many there mm-hmm. were. We only have a handful of book recommendation quests for a holiday recommendation show. So you've got the don't – a, don't be a scurred here. You can get them into us. Get them in by December 2nd, podcast at bookriot.com. Email them to us there. 
um, and we'll go through them. I wonder if we flooded the zone for recommendations, though, between all the books and Get Booked. Now, I mean, oh, maybe. between this time last year, we didn't have both of those shows, mm-hmm. which is their like TBR busting extravaganza. Yeah. Well, and it doesn't have to be a holiday request. No, Somebody of course not. just yes. asked me about good books for their book club on Twitter. Ah. Um, so you could do that if you're if you just want stuff for yourself to branch out. Um, we're happy to help you mm-hmm. do that too. But I love doing these holidays. Yes, me too. Request shows. It's fun. I th- and uh, if we get a bunch, we'll do two. We do two spots. I mean, we've broken it up yeah. the show into two parts before. So don't be afraid. Please do. We want to hear from <laughs> you there. Um, let's see. What else? We, I guess we'll do our first sponsor. Well, oh, no. We will, one more thing. No. One more thing. Oh, yeah. Let's oh, do Book big Riot news, Live. Big news. Confetti cannon. Yay. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> I like it. Someday we'll get a soundboard. Yeah. But until then, it's just Muppet Arms. <laughs> until We're going to do Book Riot Live again. Yeah, Book Riot Live 2016 is, is – is, we've officially committed to doing it. Um, and it will be in New York. And it's going to be th- – those two things are for sure that it's happening in New York. What's less sure but still probable is that it will be in the fall again. And anything after that is still in flux. So thank you all so much for coming. It was a pretty easy decision on our part in terms of response. Mm-hmm. Um, we weren't completely flat out afterwards, you know, just mostly. Yeah. Mostly dead is different than all <laughs> dead, as we all know. Um, so, you know, we recovered and took a look at everything and decided we did want to do it. We do, we do want to do it again. Um, and already we announced it on Twitter and Facebook and on the site the other day and got a lot of good responses. But for those of you who were there for the live recording, um, you you might want to start, you know, thinking about your fall plans late October into mid-November-ish as uh, maybe you want to jot out some time for, for Book Riot Live. Um, yeah, yeah, is, is should, there anything else to say about it well, right I mean, now? We, I don't... we should have dates probably oh, right. by like January or February. Yeah. Um, but we'll have a link in the show notes to the post where we announced that it was definitely going to happen and where you can sign up to be notified. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you attended Book Riot Live this year, you're already on that mailing list and we will let you know when we have dates. If you didn't attend or you're not already getting mail about Book Riot Live, you can click on the link in the show notes and it'll take you to a spot where you can drop in your email address and we'll let you know the dates. We'll let you know um, all the details. We're already we spent a good time yesterday on the back channels uh, just dreaming up our wish list oh of my god authors to have speak next year uh so we're already thinking about it it's gonna yeah, be we're fun always thinking about it. you know and if there's again no promises here but if there's someone you'd like to see we're looking for ideas so an author someone in the book world someone book adjacent someone that would not be inappropriate to have at book riot live you can also send us ideas podcast at bookriot.com again absolutely no guarantees there but we like ideas <laughs> We We do like like ideas. ideas. I'm just going to sacrifice whatever needs to be sacrificed to get us Dan Brown. Someday. Someday we'll have Dan Brown at Book Riot Live. (laughs) I mean, I spend weeks preparing for that interview. I mean, I don't even know what I would do. I have so many (laughs) questions about watches and swimming and, uh, you know, pants and tweed jackets. How do you keep the elbow patches on your jackets from wearing out? I know. Um, Flying in airplanes. uh, just all sorts of things. There's a lot I of- really just want Dan Brown to like lead a literary tour of Manhattan through the lens of stuff Robert Langdon would know. A literary tour of Manhattan or a conspiracy tour of the New York Public Library. I take either one of that them. That too. Yes, both. Yeah. yeah, morning after, you know, morning evening events with Dan Brown. Or like you have some one of those crazy scavenger hunts where you have to crack a code or a puzzle yeah. or something at each stop and then Dan Brown slash Robert Langdon is the one who makes up the puzzle. I'm going to blow your mind. What if Encyclopedia Brown grew up to be <laughs> Dan Brown. <laughs> What's Encyclopedia Brown's real name? Daniel. I, Boom. Oh, there went your mind. Sorry, there's guys. There's your conspiracy theory. I hope you weren't driving because you might have just run off the we road We should there. just 
cut the show off now. I know. We really, we really should. Never, but we, we have to at least get to our first. We have we to get do. to a sponsor. We have to get to Warby Parker. And I'm so happy that Warby Parker is back. Warby Parker, if you are unfamiliar, is a new concept in eyewear. Um, if you grew up in the 80s and the 90s, like we did, getting glasses was just a total shenanigan. Like you had to, oh, you had you to go, go in and it's like a thousand dollars. Right. You go, you have to see the doctor, which you still have to do to get your prescription. Yes. But it was like trying on all of the frames, staring at yourself. Then once you finally pick out a pair of frames that you're not sure you really look good in because now you've seen yourself in a million pairs of frames. Mm-hmm. That's Do you want the scratch coating? Do you want the anti-glare? Do you play video games or look at a computer? You should probably get these other magical things too. And it just eventually ends up costing a million dollars. Did you wear glasses as a kid? When did you no, start I, wearing glasses? Uh, I got, I wear reading glasses okay. and I got them when I was 17. Oh, you did? Really? That's young for <laughs> yeah. reading glasses. It is. Yeah. I only have to wear them for reading, but yeah, I, I've worn okay. reading glasses since I was 17. Um, well, and you're short and I'm tall and you go into yep. the, the glasses store and there's no, that's mirrors are only for like the middle, the, one the standard middle, deviation right. away from, we would, so you're, I'm crouching down, you're on your tippy toes, I'm on you're, my looking tip-toes. At a, you're looking at your nose Everything's, mostly. And you don't, it's like when you say the same word over and over yes. again, it stops sounding like a word. If you look at yourself, enough times in the mirror and enough different pairs of glasses. It's just like nothing makes any sense anymore. And so Warby Parker is here to solve all of these problems and you can do it all from home. Uh, Their prescription glasses start at $95, including the lenses. This is not a buy your frame. Yeah, I remember that old old stick where you'd see the little price tag on the frame. That's not too bad. And they're like, well, the lenses are extra bajillion dollars. The lenses cost you a billion dollars. So this $95 that includes glasses, reading glasses, and sunglasses... This makes buying glasses online easy, it's risk-free, and it's actually enjoyable. And that is the truth. Um, It doesn't matter also if your eyesight is pretty good Mm -hmm. or totally abysmal. Warby Parker can cover a wide range of prescription options. Um, And they also have um, digital freeform progressive lenses, which sounds fancy. If you have a strong prescription, you want to know that Warby Parker offers ultra-thin, high-index lenses, which means you never have to look like that kid in the sandlot that had the Coke bottle glasses. Um, And Big and thick and distorting from the side. You don't right. like look straight ahead to see. You're gonna something. look good. Um, and they have this great home try-on program, which I did this when I got my new glasses. Um, you can order five pairs of glasses that get shipped directly to you for free. You can try on all the frames at home, get a feel for them. You can wear them around. I took selfies in a bunch of them and sent them to friends. I think I even tweeted the pair that I was thinking about getting. Like these are different from what I've worn before. Do they really look okay? Mm-hmm. I'm not sure. Um, and it was great. You get to hold on to them for five days so you can get used to seeing yourself in a different pair of glasses um, which that's always an interesting like when you change something about your appearance you know like it takes a little while to decide if you really like it so you get five days with these five pairs of home try-on lenses go to warbyparker.com slash book riot to order your free home try-ons today you choose the five frames that you want to try on you mail the sample ones back choose the favorite ones to have your prescription added to and then you order them and warby parker makes the whole thing risk-free there's free shipping all the way around so warbyparker.com slash book riot for awesome glasses that start at 95 dollars, including the lenses it's a good deal also um every pair of glasses sold warby parker just use a pair of of glasses to someone in need. So you can imagine there are a lot of people around the holiday. You might be thinking terribly, but $95 is is relatively inexpensive as we know for glasses, but it's also prohibitively expensive if you don't have much money and you you need glasses. So that's a nice thing they do there. I wear Warby Parker glasses. Mm -hmm. Michelle Michelle has some reading glasses she uses that look great. They're Warby Parker. Um, We've both done free home 
try on. Um, it's wonderful. I've also been to the Warby Parker store. There's one in Soho in New York. Oh, cool. You can get your eyes checked there. I had my eyes checked there and then all my things there. So there's San Francisco and New York. I'm not sure. I'll, but you don't even need to do that. They have the yeah, same no. stuff online. And that you they just, have you here. can like scan and upload your prescription. It's really easy to put in all the details. Yeah. Like, the whole process is really simple. Um, I think I've had mine since. January. So I've been wearing my Warbies for about a year. They've held up. I'm tough on glasses. I leave mm. them lying around and I don't take very good care of them. And uh, they've been, they have been great. And if you happen to have seen me on the Book Riot YouTube channel and you like them, they're the Oliver style. Oh, that's interesting. <laughs> yeah. If you saw me at Book Riot Live, I'm, I mean, I always have to wear glasses, but mine are the, uh, uh, these are the the the. I can't remember if these are the. Have I told you the story about the my glasses and my kids? There, yes, yeah, yeah. The, I don't so know if we my kids' about names are Ames and Rowan, which are somewhat unusual names, right? Um, yeah. But I went to go to Warby Park to try on glasses, and I, the the pair I ended up getting, I can't see if it's on here. One of them, the the regular glasses I got is Ames, and then the sunglasses one, the style is called a Rowan, I, and that is weird. That's it weird. is super weird. And I don't know if I'm just right in sort of the older. Um, vaguely bookish sort of nerd creative type wheelhouse for them or what, but like it was a little bit freaky, but the, the styles are great. They look great. They do hold up well. Um, uh, it's a, it's a, it's a service I'm proud to, you know, do a spot for and wear. And One, uh, if you have glasses, the, I really do recommend checking them out. We know the folks listening to this show are spending a lot of time reading Ugh. and I'm sure that there is a, a, there are a lot of glasses wearers here. Oh, gotta be, uh, gotta be. So warbyparker.com slash book riot. You get your free home try ons. You roll through, you get your new glasses, $95, including the lenses. And when you use the WarbyParker.com slash Book Riot, that lets them know you came from us, keeps our lights on, hopefully keeps them sponsoring the show. Everybody's happy. So it's the week of Thanksgiving, generally a pretty yeah. slow week for everyone, right? Mm -hmm. um, and we're doing the show early. We weren't sure exactly what we're going to have to talk about, but there's always something going on. But on Monday, probably the most talked about thing on the bookish internet that has happened this year. Yes. Um, happened. And it's not new. I mean, it's not like, you know, uh, the new Ghost Set of Watchmen. Like, that's news that happens to be on the internet. This is a, an essay published in Tin House by Claire V. Watkins called On Pandering. It dropped on Monday. Apparently, it's the transcript or a version of a speech she gave somewhere else that met with, with warm uh, reception. Maybe even warm is uh, underplaying it. Um, and it, it's being talked about all over the bookish internet, all over the literary community by a variety of different sources, some nodding their head aggressively, some have questions, some still exploring. But basically, and tell me if I'm getting this right, and we can get into a little bit, is she, she's, it's called pandering because she's had this moment where she realized that what she's been doing as a writer, she's a novelist, short story writer, um, with a lot of her work, and maybe all of her work until this most recent book, um, was pander to white male writers, readers, and critics. Um, and by that, she meant writing in a certain style, about certain kinds of things, um, and with a certain attitude. And that became not just good writing for and about men, but became what she understood and internalized to be what good, good writing, writing was. Period. Right. right. And so I, I'd say in a nutshell, the move of this essay is to try to separate the idea of good writing, the writing I want to do, and the writing I have heretofore been lauded for from some other kind of writing, some other attitude or position or vector um, that she wants to spend her, her literary career on. Um, does that, is, that, is that a fair yeah. encapsulation, would you say? I think it is. And she also spent some time thinking about how she got to the, yes. the place where that's what she was doing 
without being aware that that's what she was doing. That how how do you end up being a writer in your early or mid thirties, and then it dawning on you that the work, all the work that you've produced, has been without really your full conscious knowledge produced with the hope of like satisfying Jonathan Franz and should he ever read it. Mm-hmm. Um, and she writes, uh, she shares a story about an experience that she had in graduate school when she was in an MFA program um, where a writer came to visit their program and she offered like they, you know, his lodging fell through. She said that he could crash at her house. He tried to get in her bed. She shut him down repeatedly. Um, and then he, the, this particular writer would send out a daily uh, newsletter. And when he wrote about the experience, he wrote about a male writer that he had met there and, you know, used the guy's full name and talked about the work that the male writer was working on. And when he mentioned her, also a student at the school, he just mentioned that he stayed with her. He mentioned just her first name and that he tried to get into her bed. She said no, and that she said no, because what was the boy that she was dating Mm -hmm. going to think Um, and she Watkins uses this as a setup for um, exploring how um, you know how men in publishing men who write are treated differently um, sort of with automatic respect um, and women who write women's work um, are more likely to be dismissed and she says you know I know that this is just one example of writers behaving badly and I know this kind of dismissal happens over and over but it's her story I mean that's the thing there's some tea being spilled here as the the phrase yes oh yeah there is definite tea being spilled here she names some names 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 um, and it's uh, she, she pulls no punches this is a really it's a really incredible essay there's a section the section that really resonated with me was about um how uh, one of the things that she had spent a lot of her life as a young woman doing was watching boys do stuff mm. um you know going to their band practices watching them play sports reading their screenplays watching them skateboard um and how you know this is a thing that girls are socialized to do how do how do all those young experiences Uh, combine so that you end up being a woman who is unaware that she's writing for a male audience. And I think the unspoken question of the piece then is how many other women feel or don't even realize Mm -hmm. that they feel that if they're going to be successful as writers, they have to write the kinds of stories um, that men see themselves in and that men want to read. Um, She says at one point she would get uh, she would get great reviews. Battleborn, her collection of short stories, I thought is really wonderful. Um, but it's it certainly like it's been compared to sort of Cormac McCarthy-ish. And so she says, the stunning truth is that I'm asking deep down as I write, what would Philip Roth think of this? What would Jonathan Franzen think of this? When the answer is probably nothing. Huh. More staggering is the question of why I am trying to prove myself to writers whose work in many cases I don't particularly admire. And she goes on to say um, that she would get reviews that would say, she can write like a man, they said, by which they meant she can write. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's, again, it's not, from my perspective, at least, it's not, it's not a surprise. Does that make sense? Like this Mm -hmm. essay, like it feels very much a part of kind of how I understand things to work in this regard. Like, you know, I've long been part of the literary establishment myself, even as, you know, as a young kid reading Harold Bloom's The Western Canon to try to figure out what to read. Like it starts young for for me and a lot of other people's in school. Um, But, you know, this is... I don't know. It's not revelatory so much as articulating. I think it's kind of how I'm coming yes, to it a little yeah, bit. Yeah, I, I agree. So it's 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 putting specific language and examples and perspective on a phenomenon. I think that is not unknown, or at least 
I guess, foreign to how a lot of us understand how the book and literary community work. I'm not I'm saying a lot of us, I'm trying to give all the caveats here. But mm-hmm. I think one reason it resonated with so many people that I would follow on Twitter and reading everywhere is like, everyone's like, you know, kind of what Emerson said, seeing someone, someone else saying something that you feel has a really cathartic sort of experience. And I think for a lot of people, particularly white people, particularly white women, and we can get to that, to those caveats here in a moment, this was like, yes, I hear this. This sounds very familiar. Even if it's not exactly my story, it overlaps. The Venn diagram of this story mm-hmm. and my story to this point are, are very similar. There's, there's a really great image um, that they use in the Tin House Peach, and it's not credit or anything, but it was very cagey um, of a, you know, a high school football game. And I've always thought about this myself, how weird the, the sort of the position of cheerleader is, right? Mm-hmm. Where it's like, you're, that is your thing, like you're on display and you're performing support, you know, and, right. and, and, and sort of uh, upholding and, and rooting on and affirming what the guys on the field are doing. And it's different than being in the audience, but it's like, it's the role for you to, so it's, it's a very, and then there's another layer of people watching, you know, of, of girls watching, uh, teenage girls watching from the fence behind that aren't even the cheerleaders. So there's like various layers going on in that particular image. It's interesting to think about here that I think Watkins in her own way moved from the fence as a younger person towards a cheerleader almost, to use mm-hmm. the metaphor, and now is saying, I don't want to be part of this game. Like, I don't right. even want to be in the stadium. I, you, what else? What else? Yeah, it's very it's, interesting. And she sort of makes a case for creating a canon of our own. Like, I think there are sort of interesting micro and macro things that mm-hmm. are happening in this essay. It's This is a thing that exists in publishing and the world of books and reading, certainly. And we've talked on the show previously about how um, women's fiction is, you know, a certain kind of story by a certain kind of author that if that same story were written by a man would probably just be called fiction. And we don't like there's not a marketing category called men's fiction. Stories about men are just assumed to be stories that everyone can be interested in. But stories by and about women are specifically for women. Mm -hmm. Um, There's sort of this pink ghetto effect that that happens to stories by and about women. And she's getting at how that happens and how if you want to be um, perceived as a writer that will have wide appeal, then you have to be perceived as a writer that men will be interested in too, not just women. But it also, I thought, got to that part where uh, got to a thing that occurs just in businesses and in the world in general. Like she can write like a man, they said, by which they meant she can write. The same things happen in boardrooms. You have mm-hmm. to, uh, she, well, she can lead a meeting the way a man can lead. I mean, that's a one meeting. of the, the most right. interesting critiques of Lean In has been. Yes. It, I don't think it's ever said explicitly. It's been a year, actually, almost exactly a year since I listened to <laughs> Lean In. But a lot of it was act more like the other people are acting. Don't be afraid, you know, like sort of leaning in and do acting like men act in business situation. And I think Roxane Gay is the one I remember the most vividly writing something like, well, what is the, what if that weren't the only, or what if that weren't the metaphor we're using leaning in? What if there was some other way of being in the world, in the professional world that wasn't mimicking or rising up to, or, you know, emulating the business world that's been defined by, you know, capitalist masculinity, is there some other way of organizing groups and institutions where you don't have to lean in, you can lean back, you can lead, you know, you, you see what I'm getting at, the, yeah. the varieties of different kinds of experiences. Sure, that success doesn't have to be structured around yeah. women's ability to imitate or emulate the way that men have always done the thing. To extend the metaphor, it almost sounds like, and tell me if this is totally off base, but that in a way, she's, Watkins here is seeing her first book, Battleborn, as a lean in moment, like trying to be mm-hmm. like the boys. 
um, the men, the real quote unquote writers. And she's now coming away as, as thinking, is there some other way of being to being a writer? Um, yeah, kind of. Except the uh, with, uh, having her having done it without realizing that's who she was yes, writing for. Yes, yes, yes. You know, yes, makes yes. it like it's it's not. Qu- I think it's not. Now we're just splitting hairs, but I think it's not quite leaning in if you don't have the moment of like now this is what I'm doing it's one thing if you I think it is one thing and it's an interesting thing Mm -hmm. you're like well I'm going to write this book in this particular way consciously and intentionally because I know that this is what I need to do to sell a book that will get a claim that will be well reviewed that men will read too so that I don't get stuck over as women's fiction Mm -hmm. Um, it's different if you're just writing that way like I think that's really what makes this piece feel so resonant is her own surprise at discovering that this was a thing that she was doing was all this work that she's been creating. She's been filtering unconsciously through that lens of what are these, what are the powerful white men in this world of publishing going to think? And like she says, probably nothing like maybe Jonathan Franzen is never going to read Battleborn. But when you're writing, you're writing for some sort of invisible imagined Mm -hmm. audience. And this is her discovery that her invisible imagined audience is white men. um, And she's trying to break out of that. And that's one thing that happens. I mean, I've done some teaching of writing myself. And I often say it's helpful if you imagine the audience you're writing to. Yes. Um, I used I used to say imagine you're writing for your smartest friend. It's kind of but but I think in 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 the literary arts, it's a much more canonical kind of audience. Like you know, Bloom called the anxiety of influence. You're sort of writing to what's come before you, and what's come before you now in the West in America. This is sort of where we are in this conversation right now. Mm-hmm. You're writing to largely white guys, right? And you know, white guys who've been taught by white guys who taught the people who taught you who taught your teachers, right? Like right. It, it's a lineage uh, of the literary canon and literary sensibility that is is, is gendered and racialized in, in really complicated ways that are very difficult to see. Um, she uses some Morrison's language here that I thought was very telling too about, she, she, she paraphrases Morrison saying, you know, that Tolstoy wasn't writing toward her and that Morrison frames her own writing as writing toward Black people and Black women in particular. Um, Coates in talking about Between the World and Me this year has been talking about the acclaim and criticism that it's gotten. Mm. And, you know, some people have been saying, well, what does it mean that a bunch of white people like Between the World and Me? It's certainly true of our staff um, yeah. that we've, we've, you know, like is such a uh, um, ham-fisted word. But the effect being that it speaks to us, we find it interesting, we, we praise it. When he's not really writing toward us, he's very much saying, I'm writing towards black people. So this idea of, even this idea of writing towards a specific group is unusual in Western literary tradition because it's been white men for white men, which has sort of been a universalizing, that's universal to them. You know, mm-hmm. That's been sort of the, the mode. If you're a white dude writing to, writing to white dudes, you're writing for everyone. Um, right, and we still, we know from the Vita counts yes. every year that coverage of books and reading is still that way, predominantly. So, and Watkins is trying to think, who do I want to write toward? Um, and why? And what about? And what would that look like? Um, she talks about being a mother and trying to make things work and being sort of middle class and... You know, all these things that would get her pigeonholed in women's fiction, um, rightly or wrongly, negatively or or, or not. Um, and she's not, do I want to do that? I'm not sure. What what am I trying to say? What am I going to do with this gift and this work that I have to do? It doesn't really end up anywhere, I don't think, right? I mean, right. something urgent. I'm, I'm 
I'm quoting here directly, I'm trying to write something urgent, trying to be vulnerable and honest, trying to listen, trying to identify and articulate my innermost feelings, trying to make you feel them too, trying a kind of telepathy, all of which is really fucking hard in the first place, and in a culture wherein women are subject to infantilization and gaslighting, in a culture that says your quote-unquote telepathic heart, um, that's more on July, that's a parenthetical, is a dumb and delicate and boring and frippery for girls, I sometimes wonder if it's even possible. I've built a working miniature replica of the patriarchy in my mind. I would very much like to burst it or burn it down. Um, yeah, girl. Very yes, interesting. Let's do that. Very interesting. It's such a, it's a really interesting piece. Um, I think it was Jen, our coworker, mm-hmm. said on Twitter that she hopes that this opens the door for more people who are realizing um, who their imagined audience is. Um, to start exploring that mm-hmm. and talking about it. Um, and it's been a, a, the piece that we're going to next is a good example. Yes. Um, this Watkins essay is not the end of the conversation, but should be the beginning. And it's been an interesting moment. Publishing is kind of, uh, some of publishing has sort of figured out how intersectionality works yes. this week. Because um, Watkins is certainly writing from the experience of a middle class white woman. And, and she tries to account, I mean, she tells some yeah, stories and about how, you know, her perspective is her perspective, but she cannot. In, in doing so, has to admit that she can't write from other perspectives. Uh, and either. so other writers, women of color and men of color and people from, you know, elsewhere on uh, the socioeconomic uh, scale have said, OK, well, that's that's her experience and there's some value there. But let's also talk about what it's like to be a black writer. And so that that takes us to the piece um, that you found that Marlon James put on Facebook. Yeah, he um, Marlon James, who wrote A Brief History of Seven Killings, which just won the Man Booker Prize um, on Facebook, wrote a, a short piece about it saying that I'll read just the first sentence and par- try to paraphrase it. I'm still unpacking Claire V. Watkins, potentially game changing essay on pandering going almost a section per day. So first of all, the attention being paid here is serious and yes. and and um, detailed, and I'd say open, open. You know, it's sort of an mm-hmm. open attention, um, and this crystallizes some of the other critiques, critiques, criticisms, addendums. However, you want to put it, I'm not really sure the right vessel to put that in, but um, that some people of color, especially women of color, have said is like Watkins doesn't even realize though how much pandering goes on to use her own language for to white towards white women in mm-hmm. books and every, you know in a lot of other places too we're in the world of books here and james says you know i've seen i i've known certain highbrow magazines and journals that if you look there's a certain style of literary fiction it's not even women's fiction that's a, even a thing like within literary fiction this whole by women about women's lives he says it's a stringent observed clipped walling with its own middle style prose and private and we porn for certain publications. So there's a sort of a tradition, a style, a almost internal genre for literary fiction that he's identifying as, you know, white women's literary fiction that gets awards. And you can write in that vein and you get certain kinds of success and certain not other kinds of success. Um, and that, that, that itself, you know, black people and people of color writing, especially women writing fiction, literary fiction are going to have a decision to make about emulating that or not. Because it can be done. You know, you can mm-hmm. learn that style and write in that sure. style. And, you know, I think, again, if, if I'm wrong about this and people know better than I do, please let me know. But I, it's almost like Lori Moore and Alice Monroe and their descendants kind of in that vein, you know, that there's sure. that, that would be mm-hmm. the – Claire Messer. Yeah, right. Yeah. That, that's – again, I don't mean this pejoratively from – I think this is what he's sort of describing just to give you some examples they could look at. Monroe probably the, the, the greatest practitioner of this certain kind of women's 
literary fiction. Yeah, he calls it bored suburban white woman in the middle of ennui experiences keenly observed epiphany. Yeah, right. And I think the the fountainhead <laughs> is Wolf that it sort of flows from, right? I mean, it's mm-hmm. it's very much Mrs. Dalloway, and after though Wolf is more experimental than um, some of these other writers. Not not to denigrate them, but. It's a different kind of thing, but what's come down is a way of observing the interior lives of a certain class and race of women. And he's saying that's one thing to look for. It's like all there's layers to all of this, and it doesn't negate Watkins' observation. I think it unfolds and expands on it. Um, but, you know, the piece I was going to bring up, at least for our readers and listeners who are not all writers necessarily, some of them are and some of them aren't, but I think we all, to a lesser degree, have had the experience of reading and trying to like or get certain books and not and being worried that we like and get other books that are wrong. Sure. Right? Is Harold Bloom going to think I'm a good yeah, reader? Yeah, or is my English teacher or my friend I'm trying to impress or my right. grad advisor or my MFA advisor or just the, the someone I work for, you know, whatever it is. There's a lot of weird social stuff that goes around on, on about books. And we've talked about this a lot on the site over the years, but afraid if you say to say you haven't read something or if you have read it, that you didn't like it or you didn't get it or it didn't, you know, went over your head or below your head or wherever, wherever <laughs> it went instead of straight into your being. Um, you know, a lot of the anxiety I think about romance and YA comes from this tradition. Um, and, and it's interesting to think about the layers of what you're doing that's not really for you when you're reading and writing or, sure. or not for you or, or for the people you care about. How much of this unconscious sort of judgment that happens um, when we read and write. So anyway, so, let's see. I'm, I'm not sure what we kind of went. We went deep on that one, but yeah, we did. We can we can bounce to something quick and light for a minute. Yeah, let's do that. Let's do want to do that. Yeah. Um, Toronto has an open air library that opened this week. That is a they call they call it a story pod, and it really does look like if you took a like giant ten foot tall <laughs> triptych and unfolded it. It has benches and bookshelves, and this uh, this piece has kids crawling around and stuff uh and there's not much more to say about it but it's really cool this is my piece of cool book architecture it's from a studio called akb um they they call the design the story pod uh, it's located if you're in toronto it's near main street in the town of new market um, and it serves as a book exchange where vis- visitors can take a book leave a book so it's really like a um giant little free library it's a, it's, that you it's can a live literal, in. a little free library on steroids. It's huge. Yeah, I mean, you can sit in it. There's lounges. It's very cool. It, like it opens up, you know, like a jewelry box kind of situation. They close it up at mm-hmm. night and it looks like a lantern in their shelves and places to sit. Very cool idea. I, I've, I should do a roundup of these sort of pop-up temporary reading spaces because I used to mm-hmm. do I used to I, I used to look for them in various variations on this theme of like a temporary or ad hoc um, or out of place reading library book centered kind of space. Very cool idea because it, one thing that's nice about it too is it's in the middle of this concrete plaza <laughs> where there's really right. nothing else, and it provides a little shade and some place to sit. Um, and it looks like they could move it if they wanted to without sure, too can, much effort. Yeah, the pod is modular. You could move it around or take it to different places. Maybe they could pop them up everywhere. Like, I, I want to sit here with an iced coffee on a Sunday. I wonder how much a it would nice cost to buy one. Of, I mean, what, what, can you buy one of these suckers? <laughs> this is how we know a thing we're looking at is good, that we start wanting what, to know how to much buy it costs. It. Yeah, yeah. How much do you think a bookmobile costs? Yeah, it's interesting. Um, oh, yeah, how much does it? Oh, we learned that. It's like 25 <laughs> we, or 50 yeah, grand. No, we've actually done the math We've done the math on the bookmobile. 
it's 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 expensive, but not prohibitive. If you want, if you really got serious about right. wanting to, have if a you really want to have a bookmobile, yeah. you could make it work. Um, so um. yeah, the story pod, the link in the show notes. I should say, there's a link in the show notes to Marlon James's response and the Watkins essay. Yeah. Of course, always, as always, you can find show notes to this and, and other episodes at bookwatch.com/podcast. The story pod thing just has me thinking. I'm so happy that architects who are wanting to do interesting experimental things it's occurring to some of them like let's do a thing with yeah books. it is interesting this isn't is it one of those things that makes me feel like okay the kids are going to be all right books are going to be fine like forward thinking fancy architects who are figuring out what our world should look like or you know what the next thing to build should be are thinking of doing things with books and i feel really good about that yeah um another, another news you guys might be interested in, especially as uh the holiday seasons roll around doing some traveling um, the Harry Potter series is finally available on Audible. Um, I know a lot of you have been wondering about that, and mm-hmm. I've been wondering about that myself. Um, up to, heretofore, I don't get to say that very often in the in the appropriate context. Heretofore is only available on um, Pottermore, the the official Harry Potter um, uh, rolling sanctioned website. Now, as they've revamped Pottermore um, and some other editions came out, remember we had those those mm-hmm. iBooks exclusive illustrated interactive editions. Now these are available on Audible. Makes them easier for a lot more people to get. I don't. Yeah. It doesn't say here if they're available on the other ebook platforms. I'm assuming in the fullness of time they will be. You can get three different versions. There's a great mm-hmm. war in the Harry there Potter is a great book war. world. Um, what's that war? Tell me about that war. It's uh, Jim Dale. Yes. Who you know is a beloved? It's an it's the War of the Narrators. The U.S. edition is narrated by Jim Dale, who also didn't he narrate that the oh, version the of the Night, Night Circus, Circus oh, that baby. Michelle loves yes. so much? <laughs> Good Book Riot flagship yeah. audiobook title. Right. Um, then there's a German edition by Felix von Montefel. Yes, Montufel. I'm not sure. You just had me do this section I so that know. I would I have so to do the difficult <laughs> pronunciation. And then Stephen Fry reads the UK editions and a great war just rages on between the Jim Dale fans and the Stephen Fry fans. Yes, there's a there's a great war. So, you know, I'd say among the Book Riot staff or contributors, it's about 50-50. I mm-hmm. have not heard, I actually haven't heard Stephen Fry narrate any audiobook. I, I know who he is and I've seen other things. I'm sure he's wonderful. Doesn't um, he do the Hitchhiker's Guide? Maybe. Oh, yes, he oh, does. I haven't yeah, listened to he, it. Oh, you haven't? Okay, no, that I one's read that so one good. I, was thir- I okay. mean, uh, that one's I've read in print I just figured you had revisited. No, That's worth no, revisiting. I've heard it's Stephen good. Fry, yeah. Stephen Fry doing the first book, just The Hitchhiker's Guide mm-hmm. to the Galaxy, is excellent. Um, he was a friend of Douglas Adams, too, which is interesting. But So anyway, you can pick your poison there to some degree, and all of them are available. Um, when the first, you know, 97 when the first book came out, we, audiobooks weren't what they are today. Uh, so anyway, that that's that's good news. I, How I'm many sure, total hours is it, I wonder, if you listen to all seven? I was in my local library the other day, you know, picking up some books and looking around, and I went to the audiobook section just to see what was there. And I saw uh, Patrick Rothfuss's Name of the Wind. In, oh, no. Because you check them out as CDs. And it was <laughs> like, did you, you pro- you're probably uh, old enough, sorry, Shinsky, to have one of those like big <laughs> CD folder things. You remember we used to have oh, those yes. in college uh-huh. in your car? Mm-hmm. It looked like one of those things. Like, it looked like it was like 70 discs. I'm not even kidding. <laughs> Um, they did have to check out. So I'm sure if you got them as CDs, it, they'd be insane. But yeah, I, I mean, the, the Harry Potter books, they're long. I'm guessing they're 15 to 25 hour audio books, so depending many. on which one you're doing. The last one, the Deathly Hallows one's the longest. So yeah. you're looking yeah. at a good, oh. a good uh, clip there. 
Man, I'm just having a nostalgia corner moment thinking about my CD books. Oh, I, I think know. they're up, they're upstairs right now. Well, in college, if you remember, frozen the, in time, your your folder of your like 500 CDs was probably the single most valuable object in your dorm room, right? Yeah, right. And it, that was the signifier in the same way that bookshelves are yeah. a signifier. Like people come in, they would come into your dorm room, they would flip through, you know, CDs mm-hmm. and talk and that's an I, I guess i hadn't thought about it but my cd collection is certainly frozen in time oh, like as soon as i yes. switch to digital music and people do sometimes talk to us about not wanting to switch to ebooks fully even though they like ebooks because then what if my bookshelves get frozen mm-hmm. in time <laughs> too it is it is interesting like you know not i don't think my taste in music has changed that much from like when i was 22 to now at 32 yeah. but michelle um, our 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 I don't even, ours are in boxes somewhere here in the basement, but we have two big, I think they're 250 CD each. Mm-hmm. They're definitely for, because like right around the time we got, I guess we got our iPods, which has been 2004, 2005, yep. just whoosh, mm-hmm. no more CD. <laughs> no yeah, more I remember CDs. like, oh, you spend hours and like days of your life converting your oh, CDs over to, <laughs> to iTunes. <laughs> and now they're just up there for all those mixes. Oh, I have so I many playlist, mi- like mixed CDs up there. Think of how many um, Blues Traveler CDs are locked in, in <laughs> CD cases from people of our age. Everyone had that record hook, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yes. Blues Traveler. There's... Oh, I still have my, my first CD since we're going down yes. this road. Apparently, my first CD ever was Hootie and the Bluefish Cracked. Oh, review. that's pretty good. That was <laughs> what, 98, 99? Is that where uh, they came it out? Was, Maybe a little I was before. Like, oh, I think it was like 96. Yeah, okay. That sounds about right. Um, I remember going, I bought that and Ryan Adams, Everything I Do, I Do It For You. Mm. And I think I still have both of those somewhere. I'm proud good. of Hootie. Hootie was an all right starting point. Oh, man, you were from the Midwest. Boy, oh, boy. Um, oh, but, well, sh- no, I'm not. <laughs> I'm there with kettle. you. I'm right there. I'm right there <laughs> what with you. What was yours? Well, I for my 13th birthday, I got a CD player and a fifty or no, $100 gift certificate to Keith's Music um, in Lawrence. And you remember in those days, like CDs were like 28 bucks and they came in those long boxes. Some of you may uh-huh. not be remembered. They were worried about the CDs getting stolen. So they'd take the CD and basically make, I guess, another two thirds the, the height of the CD of just empty box. Yeah. So you couldn't, I guess, smuggle it into your, uh, smuggle it into your, to your jacket. And so I bought, my dad was with me. I was 13. So I had to drive me down there and I really wanted Nevermind by Nirvana. Oh, yeah. So, cause it's 1991. I'm 13 mm-hmm. years old. But it had that explicit thing on it and the naked yep. baby. So I can't let him see that. So I bought um, Sgt. Pepper <laughs> and Revolver. And you stuck and I Nevermind, put Nevermind in, between them. in between them to go to the checkout. And I checked uh, out and I, and I got away with it. And then I took my whole hundred like, bucks with tax. Three it's CDs. Like wedging, wedging your Playboy in between Rolling Stone I know, and Men's it was Health. Me, I was trying to get Nirvana. <laughs> Um, yeah, but that's our story. Oh, Audible, audiobooks. Where, what are yeah, we I know. About? Name of the Wind, all the way back to Jim Dale and how long? Yeah. Anyway, so uh, you have to pardon our uh, nostalgia trip there. Though nost- I'm not, I'm not, I don't miss those days of CDs. No, I don't have to say no. it's not really. Tell nostalgic. us. I want to know what was your first CD. Oh, yeah, or you know, or your last CD also would be. Very oh, that's interesting. interesting. Yeah. I don't have any idea what mine was. Yeah, I don't know. I have to. I have to think about it. Um, the first times are more salient. Yeah, anyway, well, anyway. Um, Okay. Speaking of things you can listen to. Yeah, well, this is interesting. There was an interesting piece in uh, the New York Times, of all places. Writing about audiobooks uh, audio and romance. And romance, yeah. Apparently, New day at the Times. erotic romance is just a booming business for audiobooks. 
As, as uh, it is for all books, but it looks like even yes, more for uh, ero- right. erotic audio, romance, not just romance, yeah, right? Audio recordings of erotic fiction um, are a booming business. Long-haul truck drivers who buy audio CDs at travel centers on the road are just some of the enthusiastic listeners. Um, and the popularity of MP3 downloads has, of course, like combined to produce this huge uh, fictional aural sex, A-U-R-A-L. Mm-hmm. Probably they wrote uh, that just for that. that yeah, somebody head. was like, oh, man, I really, I really love this. That, pun. Yeah. What piece do I have to write <laughs> to make this pun? <laughs> um, but erotic books on audio started appearing about 15 years ago. Interesting. The early listeners tended to be men um, because they had mastered the new technology mm-hmm. of downloading first. Uh, women joined in later in 2005. Audible, which was already the uh, largest digital consumer distributor of audiobooks, created a partnership with Harlequin. Um, and then, of course, that well, that included uh, novels by Zane, uh, who is the queen of black erotica, according to this piece. Um, and I remember from my bookseller days how popular Zane mm-hmm. was. Um, that Those sold well in audio, Fifty Shades of Grey um, was, of course, a huge thing for books in all genres. But really interesting. I was so surprised. Like, I'm not surprised that, you know, this is happening, but like that the New York Times is paying attention to yeah. erotic audiobooks um, and watching. I think that's the most interesting thing about the piece yeah. is figuring, I told watching the, the New York Times figure out how to cover it. Can I tell you the story it. about the, 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 the dude that drove our stuff? Um, in our in the truck from New York to Portland. No. Did I tell you this? No, but now yeah, I'm really interested. I, I'm surprised I didn't. Anyway, so he, you know, he, he was driving. He's a long distance truck driver. That's what he does. You know, our job mm-hmm. alone took five days. Um, we had a few mm-hmm. minutes to talk while we had some shenanigans it worked out for the people actually moving the stuff. But anyway, I don't know how we started talking about it. But I get nervous when I'm chatty, and I'm nervous when they're trying to get stuff moved into the house, as everyone is. And apparently, he listens to a bunch of audiobooks. Um, he likes mysteries. Of course, that's what he told me. You know, who knows? <laughs> um, but he and, like, a group of truck drivers people have, like, a, a shared cache of, like, ripped oh, audiobooks. Yeah. That they sort of – I don't know if it's file sharing, like, on BitTorrent or if it's just Dropbox or it's just to email it back and forth or whatever. But so as people buy them or rip them or get them from the library or whatever, they throw them into this big pool – because you can imagine long district truck driving probably it's hard to imagine a profession more suited to copious um, consumption mm. of audiobooks than doing something like that. Yeah. And they go through, I mean, you know, they're listening in eight, 10 hours a day. So you can imagine the number of they go through. Because even Audible, who has sponsored the show in the past, I'm a customer of, I think you're still a customer of. Oh, yeah, yeah. There's a cap to how many books you can get for a subscription service. They do not have an all you can listen to. Um, tier, at least the last time I checked. Right. Yeah. You can buy more credits. You can buy more credits, but to get like the discounted one, there's not. So I think if there were such ones, the the truck driving folks would run them out of, I should have told him about Scribd back in the day. Well, it was after Scribd went to to credit for. But anyway, I thought that was interesting. So I have have a set of anecdotal personal data to support this. uh, I think I'm going to have to collect some more anecdotal personal data. Um, I'm a big romance reader. I also really read and enjoy erotica, but I've never listened to a romance audiobook. And I did, I think I asked on Twitter one day, like, do romance audiobooks have sound effects? Yes. And someone was like, no, Rebecca, it's just a narrator reading the story. Get your head out of the gutter. But apparently that's not the whole truth because that also comes up in this piece uh, that maybe there's a difference for 
the romance books and the erotica um, audiobooks. But uh, it says, like, what they're talking to one of the narrators who says that if you want to be taken seriously and you want to record the erotic audiobooks, you come up with a pseudonym so that mm. bookers don't look you up and say, like, oh, all she did was read porn books. Uh. Um, so there's that stigma about romance and erotica still being pervasive. But it sounds like there's a higher level of performance required here, like that um, someone, she says, if they write, like, oh, you have to read it as if you're having an orgasm. So I circle the text whenever that's about to happen. Um, and that, you know, you can get tired after you read your 15th sex scene, because you can only perform <laughs> so many of mm -hmm. them. Um, but I had not previously heard of this of sex scenes actually kind of being acted out vocally on audiobooks. Um, Twitter just chastised me for having a dirty mind. And, and now I feel slightly vindicated that this exists. I, are we done with the airing of grievances? It's not. Is it Festivus yet? I don't even know. I can't remember when it starts. Well, okay, we you're not wrong. You're just mostly wrong. Noted. We could we could get to the part where she talks about descriptions of genitalia that made her giggle. Is that a thing you'd like to do now, Jeff? Sorry, I think my Skype just went out for a minute. You have to. You're going to. Have to yeah, we'll have to move on from there. Are we even now? Let's. Move yeah, on. I don't. I don't even know. We're we're running out of time a little bit. Anything else? Let's see what do we want to hit here. Uh, let's do. Uh, First editions? Yeah, sure. I didn't read this piece. Oh, okay. Well, I can walk you through it a little bit. Oh, but the, okay. it's, things are in pounds sterling, so I can't I do... saw that there was something that was... There was a ranking, and I was yeah, like, oh, that'll right. be a guessing um, game on the most air. Most valuable so first editions. Uh -huh. um, has Stanley Gibbons, who sounds like a London-based dealer for trading in stamps and coins, uh, is, is actually named, has compiled an index of the 35 first editions, 35 first editions of the 20th century that are okay. most valuable. Um, so I guess, did you, you saw the headline? The, the yeah, I did one. see that Great Gatsby is number, number one. Number one is a Great Gatsby coming in. Um, and this apparently is for a mint condition or a close to mint as you can get with a dust jacket of 246,000 pounds, which I think is somewhere in the neighborhood of $400 right now. I think that's oh, close to what the uh -huh. exchange rate would be. Um, let's see, what else do we have here? Um, I've got the top 10. You are want to these, try to guess some of them? Sure. Are they just, are they UK? Is this, are these just the values in the UK? Yes. Like, yes. Okay, don't so don't try be... to guess the numbers, just things okay. you think might be on the right. top 10. But I'm, I'll tell but you, I I'll give have... you a hint. The so I shouldn't Gatsby, just think about like what would be big in the US. No, no. The okay. Gatsby is the number one and it is four times as expensive as the number two. Holy so cats. like there's a big, um, and then the, the number two is three times as big as the third list. So there's a real okay. heavy weighted towards the top. Now this is getting to be complicated. Yeah, now. no, you don't do the um, math. I just thought that was interesting. Okay, so Gatsby is first, and this is all 20th century. There's nothing and, published after 1960, as far okay, as I can Okay, so there's tell. no Toni Morris. Yeah, no Morris. Um, are the authors all dead? Yes. They're all dead. Uh, is Hemingway on the He list? is. Clocking Where's at number five with oh. In Our Time. Okay. Not what about Faulkner? Faulkner is not on here. Hmm. Okay. Um, so we have Fitzgerald and Hemingway. Um, uh, oh, oh, um, C.S. Lewis? The UK people like That's the C.S. Lewis. That's a very Lewis. good guess, but no. No? You're on the right okay, track. Okay. So Tolkien. There you go. Number two, The Hobbit. Uh, okay. a, a near mint is 64,000 pounds. So I think just around a hundred thousand dollars. Does that seem low or high to you? hundred thousand dollars for first edition of the Hobbit? 
Oh, that kind of seems low. It means that's it's a lot of. Don't get me wrong; it's a lot of money. But I guess that I'm thinking of the art world, right? Like that that sure, uh, right. the Mogli, Moglidani that just sold for 170 million. I guess there's only and one of them, for, and whatever. But like for how beloved yeah, the Hobbit yeah. is, um, are there any women on there the are list? Not one. Oh. I'm sorry, one. Number ten. Okay. Number ten. Oh, okay. Women. Twentieth. Is it Ayn Rand? It is the Fountainhead. Very good okay. guess. Yes. And that's 8,500 pounds. So okay. about $12,000, I think. Um, we'll take one more and then we'll, I'll, I'll read you the rest of the list. More. Uh, this is hard. It's hard. It's hard. I keep thinking about older ones. I'm like, Hawthorne, yeah. no, wait. Um, I think this, there's there's a couple pop culture ones. Like, um, so Casino Royale is number four, Ian Fleming, oh, the first Bond. Oh, that would not have occurred to yeah, me at all. Yeah, but it makes sense, okay. right? Yeah. yeah, it does make sense, so, but I was never going to get And then there. the other sort of more pop culture one is the Christopher Robin books. There's a complete set, I guess. Oh. That's 13,000 pounds. So I was, uh, one to 10, never, Gatsby, yeah. okay. 246,000 pounds. The Hobbit, 64,000 pounds. Ulysses, number three, 25,000 pounds. Casino Royale, Ian Fleming, the first James. Bond book in our time in our way you guessed Lord of the Rings another Tolkien at five uh, okay. so so he's got two proof rock um, and other observations by T.S. Eliot clocking at number six 17,000 I would pounds. never have guessed that uh, the Christopher Robin books 13,000 tender is the night by F. Scott Fitzgerald 10,000 decline and fall by Evelyn Waugh at 10,000 and the fountainhead by Ayn Rand at <laughs> 9,000 pounds i'm surprised there's not a wolf on there yeah i wonder um, what the list would look like in the u.s too yeah I, I guess it might be a little bit different um the only nonfiction in the top 30 was john maynard Keynes's the general theory of employment oh. interest and money which is maybe the most influential work of economics of all time um so anyway that, that's pretty interesting right so you can yeah. get into a first edition of Let's see. I mean, a first edition of Tender is the Night for 15 grand. I mean, that's expensive. Don't get me wrong. But that's top 10, 20th century. Like, uh, that doesn't seem yeah, terrible. It does seem that's lower than I would have guessed. Yeah, yeah. You can spend $25,000 on a watch, um, you know, one of these types of things. I'm a little surprised that Gatsby just outclasses everything else. Me too. By, you know, a factor of four. And it could be, as they say, just it's scarcity. You have to remember not just what demand, but also how many there are. So there could be a lot more, for example, there could be a lot more um, copies of the Fountainhead rolling around. Right. But there's there's just not as sure. in the same number of buyers. So that's one thing that's hard to say. Really interesting. Um, yeah. I didn't know this exactly. I always knew they took a commission, but this says 15 to 20% commission to the dealer if you're selling one of these. Man, I should have been a book I know. Dealer. So when you're looking at Antiques Roadshow and those people are angling for their <laughs> 20% commissions on uh, things that they're getting there. So I thought that was pretty good. That is. Anything else? Or hear, is, yeah, one more? We got a hero. Let's do one cool, more. Quick hero of the yeah, week. Yeah, okay, yes, great. Um, Simmons College has partnered with Lee and Lowe Books, and we've talked about Lee and Lowe several times on the show. They do great books, and they also do great work in publishing to support diversity and representation, especially in children's literature. Um, so they've established the Lee and Lowe and Friends Scholarship, which will provide opportunities for students from diverse backgrounds to enroll in the most prestigious children's literature grad programs. Um, the first Master of Arts in Children's Literature in the United States, as well as the Master of Fine Arts in Writing for Children at Simmons College. It's a $100,000 scholarship Oof, nice. fund. 
That that is not That's insignificant. Nice. That's nice from Lee and Lowe. Um, that they've created with Simmons College to provide a meaningful way to address one of the most challenging obstacles in bringing more equity to publishing, the pipeline problem, mm-hmm. says Jason Lowe, who's the publisher of Lee and Lowe. I mean, we've talked so many times about um, how the the way to the way toward increased representation in publishing uh, means that we have to change every, every link piece. on the yep. chain, every piece. I mean, that means getting more writers in the door. That means getting more junior editors and more agents uh, who are not just you know, well-off white people, more buyers. And so Lee and Lowe is stepping towards doing that by funding these scholarships for um, people who want to work in and write children's literature. I just think it's very cool. You can um, get more information by emailing children's literature at Simmons with two M's. Yeah, if you're interested dot, or know someone that might be. Edu. Yeah. Right. Pass on that information. Of course, we'll have a link in the show notes to more of the details, too. But uh, given the audience of this show, I would not be surprised if somebody is thinking that they might want to get an MFA in children's literature or in writing for children. And there are some really cool opportunities to do that here. So just a bravo to Lee and Lowe um, for partnering with Simmons College on that. That feels like a good note to end on Yeah, that's good. And the, the first scholarships will be awarded for fall 2016. Cool. So you, I guess you'll be enrolling in fall 2016 if you've got mm-hmm. some. It doesn't say how many or exactly what it covers necessarily, but I'm, I bet they're still working it out. They do, I mean, the line here, unpaid internships and costly graduate programs combined with low entry-level salaries are significant barriers to many barriers to many yep. hoping to work in publishing. That's a story we hear over and over All and the over time. and over again. Okay. So that's last our thing. show. Cause... Last thing. Oh, Store.bookride.com. Yes. This weekend, I think this show's going to go out Thursday or Friday. Big sale at the store. 30% off. Store.bookride. Did they have to use a code, do you know? Nope. Just it's, everything it's just everything. So if you're doing some shopping this weekend, you don't even have to leave your house for this one. You can just nope. go look at book stuff. Um, there's mugs and T-shirts and all sorts of stuff for Socks you and hoodies, or the book lovers in your bags. life that you're buying for. Um, it runs through the 29th, I believe, is the sale, right? Yes, 11, indeed. 29. The Black Black Friday sale runs. Um, I think it'll actually technically turn, like the sale will turn on on Thanksgiving uh, if you're noodling yes. around wanting to do some shopping, but it'll be active on Friday, Saturday, and then it ends on I got to do a little shopping. I'm doing a little shopping on there, I think. I got a couple I'm, of things I got to pick up. I'm probably going to order myself another Book Riot hoodie because yeah, they are so right. snuggly. <laughs> they I just, are, like, I, it's the season. <laughs> I have a black one. Of course, I need a gray one. 30% off is a good deal. Um, Thank you so much also to Mac Weldon and Warby Parker for sponsoring the show. You can get 20% off with Mac Mac Weldon with the promo code BookRiot, one word, and go to warbyparker.com slash bookriot to get your free trial all set up. Thank you so much. Thank you guys so much for listening. We're very thankful for you. We'll talk to you next week. Oh, send us recommendation requests. Yes, yes. Podcast at bookriot.com. Bye. Bye. Bye.